What are we doing? Where are we at? Where are we headed? We're doing a Core Doctrines series. It started during early COVID on Zoom on Sunday nights. It is now on Sunday mornings, February through May, February, March, April, May, and then the fall, August, September, October, November. Lord willing, uh, Grow will go through November in our Core Doctrine series. It is the first three Sundays of every month. This is, for those of you who are awake already, the second Sunday of February. That means we are doing part two of our February look at Article 8. March, Article 9, three parts. You can see the idea. 8, 9, 10, all the way through the end of our elder affirmation of faith. So that's what we're doing, core doctrines, kind of basic Christian theology. Uh, I have an incentive to listen carefully today. Uh, Page, let's see, page 143 and page 152 of this book and the two pages after each of those. So 143 to 145, 152 to 154 uh, will be really uh, helpful supplement to what we'll talk about today. Here's the incentive to listen well. I'm going to give this away at the end of today's session. I'm going to get Derek to give a commercial, so pre, preload your commercial at, for, for the end. Um, and the catch is, whoever takes it, it's free, but you have to read it by the third week of November. You got more than enough time to read the whole book by the third week of November and to put one comment post on our our, uh, church center member uh, app thing for others. This is is how this book was helpful to me. This is why I would or would not recommend it. Uh, Whatever whatever you're going to put, but those are your incentives. All right, so today uh, we're at Grove, February 13th. We are in our Core Doctrine series, as I mentioned. It's based on our elder affirmation of faith. We are on part two, last week we looked at biblical theology of the doctrine we'll cover. Today we're looking at historical theology. What has the church uh, wrestled with for the last 2,000 years about this great doctrine? And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at applying practical theology. What does it look like to live underneath the, the waterfall uh, of this truth? So today's article, as was true last week and will be again next week, is the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, often forgotten realities of the Spirit's work in our life, and as I mentioned, we're looking at historical theology. Before I read Article 8, the saving work of the Holy Spirit, join me in prayer. Father, we ask that these next few moments together uh, would be illumined by the Holy Spirit who is saving us. Help us to see the truth as you have revealed yourself in your word, to receive, to believe, and to walk in the green pasture of the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. Help us now, Lord, to think deeply, biblically, and to be receptive to the transforming power of the person of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so Article 8 is long, it's wordy. Uh, There are four parts to it. First, 8.1. We believe that the Holy Spirit has always been at work in the world, sharing the work of creation, awakening faith in the remnant of God's people, performing signs and wonders, giving triumphs in battle, empowering the preaching of the prophet of prophets and inspiring the writing of scripture yet when christ had made atonement for sin and ascended to the right hand of the father he inaugurated a new era of the spirit by pouring out the promise of the father on his church point two we believe that the newness of this era is marked by the unprecedented mission of the spirit to glorify the crucified and risen christ This he does by giving the disciples of Jesus greater power to preach the gospel of the glory of Christ, by opening the hearts of hearers that they might see Christ and believe, by revealing the beauty of Christ in his word and transforming his people from glory to glory, by manifesting himself in spiritual gifts, being sovereignly free to dispense as he wills all the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, for the upbuilding of the body of Christ confirmation of his word by calling all the nations into the sway of the gospel of Christ and in all this thus fulfilling the new covenant promise to create and preserve a purified people for the everlasting habitation of God point three we believe that apart from the effectual work of the spirit no one would come to faith because all are dead in trespasses and sins that they are hostile to God morally unable to submit to God or please him because the pleasures of sin appear greater than the pleasures of God. Thus, for God's elect, the spirit triumphs over all resistance, wakens the dead, removes blindness, and manifests Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way through the gospel that he becomes irresistibly attractive to the regenerate heart. And then finally, We believe that the Holy Spirit does this saving work in connection with the presentation of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Thus, neither the work of the Father in election, nor the work of the Son in atonement, nor the work of the Spirit in regeneration is a hindrance or discouragement to the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples and persons everywhere. On the contrary, this divine saving work of the Trinity is the warrant and the ground for our hope that our evangelization is not in vain in the Lord. The Spirit binds His saving work to the gospel of Christ because His aim is to glorify the Christ of the gospel. Therefore, we do not believe that there is salvation through any other means than through receiving, whoop, than through receiving the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit except that infants and severely retarded persons with minds physically incapable of comprehending the gospel may be saved. Okay, so for those who missed last week, we took point one, point two, point three, point four. We pulled out the core theological truth of those, and we looked at biblical support for every uh, point of Article 8, the saving work of the Holy Spirit. For those who missed that, the audio is available on the fancy schmancy thing that Ben does uh, that you can find on podcast, (laughs) the grow teaching from last week. Today we're going to look, as I mentioned, at historical theology, church history. So I want you again to put into your mind 
a map. You need to get, our family plays Ticket to Ride, so you need to get from Duluth to New York. Okay? Everybody's like, where's Duluth? (laughs) Exactly. You've got to know where you're at in relationship to where we've been to have a semblance of direction of where we're headed. We're not the first people to ever think biblically, detailed, specifically, intentionally about some really deep doctrines and the church, uh, it, it, according to the, to, to the world standard, has been divided over things. But the capital C church, the, 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 the people of Christ have been united across denominations, across uh, all sorts of, you know, what appear like foe divisions. We have been united on the core of the gospel from the beginning until today. The church is not in disagreement over the essentials of the faith and never has been. So what have been some of the challenges historically to the saving work of the Holy Spirit? We're gonna cover a lot of territory, Lord willing, in uh, just a few minutes. I'll show you from the affirmation where I'm getting the things we're gonna talk about and then we'll dig in. Prevailing views of redemptive history. Basically, how has uh, God's revelation of himself unfolded since creation. That's what we're about to talk about. There are a couple of prevailing views. There are a lot of nuanced views. So we believe the Holy Spirit's always been at work in the world. Yet when Christ made atonement for sin and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he inaugurated a new age of the Spirit. So he's always been at work and he's still working. What are the prevailing views of how he has done that? I'm going to identify two, and I believe these are representative of the two main perspectives. Again, a lot of nuance under each one. Something called dispensationalism and something called covenant theology. You may have heard these words before. So-and-so is a dispensationalist or believes in dispensationalism. And you may have heard of other people say, no, 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 no. The Bible is ordered covenantally and I'm a covenant theologian. And then again, there's nuance to every one of these, so I'm going to be grossly oversimplifying a few things. First, dispensationalism. Dr. Robert Godfrey gave the following interview in uh, a Ligonier Q&A, the ministry connected to the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, and said, let me get my cursor over here. Dispensationalism starts with John Nelson Darby, Anglo-Irish theologian, Plymouth Brethren minister, early 1800s, 1800, 1882. So John Nelson Darby espoused explicitly the idea of dispensationalism in the 19th century in England. It's usually thought of, Dr. Godfrey says, as being an approach to last things, eschatology, the end times to questions about the return of Christ. But in fact, it's somewhat more fundamental than that. It's really a way of reading the Bible. The Christian, Godfrey says, is guided by grace. So why is there all that law in the Bible? Dispensationalists would say, well, that's for Israel. Darby argued, the fellow who espoused concretely 
kind of the, the essence of dispensationalism. He argued that the church in grace is saved in a different way from the way in which Israel in the Old Covenant was to be saved. So there are two dispensations of grace, two dispensations of God's work with his people. The church saved by grace, Israel saved by law. Darby then expanded that, so he ended up with seven dispensations. But those were the two main ones, law and grace. And that then, uh, and that then was tied to the idea of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. Darby was a premillennialist. Christ will return before the millennium, before the thousand year reign. And the purpose of the millennium was to allow the Jews to fulfill the law that they never properly fulfilled in the old covenant. Let me take a breath because I'm going to read a couple more thoughts from Dr. Godfrey. So, he writes, dispensationalism is a way of reading Scripture. It informs the way you read all the Bible. Which divides parts of Scripture into what applies to Israel and what applies to the church. In what Godfrey says, I, as a covenant theologian, regard as problematic. Another important element, he concludes, with dispensationalism, of dispensationalism, is its insistence that we have to read Scripture literally. And so, if there were literal promises about, for example, land to Israel in the Old Testament, those have to be fulfilled in the millennium, or God is not true. Godfrey concludes, I think the claims to literalness in dispensationalism are problematic but we need more time to talk about that. So, let me give you some summary definitions. This again from Dr. Godfrey on what is dispensationalism at Ligonier. Dispensationalism is a way of reading Scripture in terms of how God deals with His people in different dispensations for their salvation and what the end times will look like. Has God had one way of saving people or multiple? Dispensationalism, Michael Vlach in his book, Dispensational Theology, which is cited in a great article, I think a great article, that summarizes dispensationalism fairly at Together for the Gospel, it says this, dispensationalism is an evangelical theological system that addresses issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. It also argues for a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies involving ethnic national Israel and the idea that the church is a New Testament entity that is distinct from Israel. So do you see continuity between the covenants, covenant theology, or do you see distinctions, dispensations in those covenants, old and new, aka dispensationalism? Vlach, I think is super helpful. I'm about to quote to you from his book, Dispensational Theology. Darby, the founder of dispense, the, the one credited with founding dispensationalism, believed that Israel would experience earthly blessings in a future dispensation that were different from what the church would experience. He advocated for a strong distinction between Israel and the church. Darby also popularized the idea that the church would be raptured or snatched to heaven just prior to the 70th week of Daniel. Familiar with that apocalyptic prophecy in Daniel. The rise in popularity of dispensationalism also occurred through Bible conferences, the rise of Bible institutes and colleges, 
the founding of DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, founded largely on the uh, dispensational reading of scripture, the popularity of radio and television programs from dispensational teachers. Maybe you've heard of some of these names. Hal Lindsey, uh, he wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. Maybe you've heard of Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the Left Behind series, all written from this perspective, became wildly popular, popular in the generation just ahead of us, me. Um, dispensationalism remains, the, remains popular in the U.S., but it has plenty of critics. The two most recognized features, Vlatch adds, of dispensationalism involve two things. Number one, seven dispensations. You've got to read the Bible that way. And two, a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, uh, which the church, in which the church will be snatched from heaven before seven-year tribulation period. So here's the seven dispensations. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. Now, not all dispensationalists agree with what I just said, but that's Darby, and that's the seven-fold uh, structure with which he reads the Bible. Dispensationalists believe that passages like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Revelation 3.10, reveal that the church is promised a physical rescue from the period of divine wrath, hence pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, Dispensationalists affirm all the core things about uh, the essence of the gospel. They affirm Jesus is the ultimate Israelite who will save and restore ethnic national Israel. That's their view. And bring blessings to the Gentiles, according to Isaiah 49. All right. That's a main way of reading the Bible. Let me give some concluding thoughts uh, before I go to covenant theology. Some dispensationalists believe no promise to Israel find fulfillment in the church today. That's classic dispensationalism. While others believe there's a partial fulfillment of some covenant promises with the church, that's progressive dispensationalism, but all dispensationalists believe the complete fulfillment of Old Testament promises will occur in the future when Israel is saved and restored. So God has made, dispensationalists would contend from scripture, promises to ethnic Israel concerning their salvation. Okay, covenant theology. This is another way of reading scripture. It is distinct from everything I've just said. So if you're still awake, here we go. Covenant theology, Lake Duncan says, is a framework for biblical interpretation informed by exegetical, biblical, and systematic theology that recognizes the redemptive history revealed in scripture is explicitly articulated through a succession of covenants. So the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the New Covenant, thus providing an organizing principle for biblical theology. He goes on to say, a divine covenant, the Hebrew word and the Greek word are up there, as distinguished from those made between human priests and the scriptures, a divine covenant Duncan says, is a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. So where do covenant theologians get the idea uh, of uh, a covenant of, of, of redemption? Here's what Duncan says. The idea is simple. The Son was granted by the Father, by an eternal arrangement, a people to save and to redeem 
to whom the Holy Spirit applies all the benefits of the Son's covenantal work. The covenants of grace manifests this purpose and plan in human history. Hence, covenant theologians, Duncan says, view the plan itself as a covenant of redemption. And uh, I'm, for time's sake, I'm going to skip a, a, a ton of other summary notes that Lig Duncan gives of, of covenant theology. We can come back to them in, in Q of A. Here, this, this is in accord with my view. So here's my cards on the table. And if you want nine sermons to hear it, you can go look at that logo on our church sermon archives, The Supremacy of Christ in the Canon. I just literally walk straight through. I do my best. I don't know how comprehens- comprehensible it is to argue this is like 2008 or nine, something like that in Grace's history. Um, to walk through the covenants that God made with different people in Scripture, Old and New Testament, and show that there's continuity and that those covenants are Christ-centered. But I want to go back and say this. I would say I'm a Christ-centered covenant theologian. Uh, I've read a lot about covenant theology that seems to miss the most important aspect, J-E-S-U-S. So if it's not Christ-centered, I don't want any part of it. I believe Christ is the central revelation that God makes in His covenant to Abraham, to Noah, to David, to Moses, so on and so forth. That's what I tried to show in that sermon series those many years ago, and I'm sure it probably sounds like this. (laughs) So I did my best. Uh, But you could go look at that there. There's something else I want to draw out in the few minutes we have remaining. I basically said this. You can read the Bible two ways. And church history has read it mainly two ways, dispensationalism being a newer Darby, early 1800s, way of reading Scripture that's very prevalent today that you would be hard-pressed to find a lot of support of before 1800. Before that, you would find one primary way among Protestant theologians, I think you can trace that back to the church fathers, of a way of reading Scripture structured around the covenants God made. Okay? That's where I'm at. There's my cards on the table. But concerning the saving work of the Holy Spirit, I want to say two more things. The opening, this is 8.2, of hearts of hearers of the gospel that they might see Christ and believe is something that has been contested throughout church history among Christians who both believe the gospel, all believe the gospel, and here's the contest. Ordo salutis, the order of salvation. How does the Holy Spirit do this? How does His work show up in an individual person's life who believes the gospel? Well, you're talking about that Latin phrase, ordo salutis, means the order of salvation, and there are two primary. There's a Wesleyan, Arminian way of understanding that, and there's a Reformed, Calvinistic way of understanding that. So here we go. The Wesleyan, John Wesley, ordo salutis, would be this. This is squeezing down. They would nuance in between every one of these, but I think if if a a Wesleyan theologian, Armenian theologian was in our presence, they would say, yes, I agree that that's that's where I'm at. So I'm not trying to caricature. This is, I think, an accurate reflection. Provenient grace, 
There's, there's a work of grace, a divine grace that precedes human decisions. In other words, provenient grace, Arminian theologians would say, uh, God will start showing love to that individual at certain points in his lifetime, enabling him to act uh, upon the gospel call. So provenient grace leading to conviction of sin, leading then to repentance, conversion, which includes justification, regeneration, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. This is basically how the gospel works out in an individual person's life who comes to believe upon Christ. Wesleyan friends would agree that these things are not necessarily temporal as much as logical. It's not like this happens then this happens, then this happens chronologically, but in relationship one to another, the Holy Spirit, I believe they would contend, works this way. In the Reformed uh, Calvinistic way of understanding Ordo Salutis, it would be this way. Eternal election, in time the gospel call, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Well, you can probably see some overlap already. The Reformed understanding of Ordo Salutis also is not linear. It's not temporal. It's not chronological. So, redemptive benefits, like look at the word regeneration. I can get my cursor right here. Regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, sanctification occur concurrently, maybe almost simultaneously. You can't parse them out in terms of time dimensions. In other words, by placing, monergism says, by placing repentance prior to justification in the chart on the reform side, it does not mean in any way that repentance uh, causes justification. Rather, it's a fruit of regeneration. Now, stay with me, because I think you'll see something here. In the Wesleyan side, it basically comes down to the relationship between regeneration and repentance. The same on the Reformed side. Which precedes and gives rise to the other. In the Wesleyan side, free will, Arminian, non-Calvinistic way of understanding divine grace. They would say repentance precedes regeneration. In a Reformed understanding, regeneration, being made alive spiritually by the Holy Spirit, gives rise to, precedes repentance. That's where the elders of this church stand, on the second Reformed side, which also has a rich, rich historical theology behind it. Um, man, I have so many notes right here. Uh, I want you to hear Sinclair Ferguson, so, so let, me, let me let you hear him. Will it work if I play a little video that I've embedded? Anybody know? Do you know? We'll give it a try. Uh, so it, it relates to this yellow part. For God's elect, the Spirit triumphs over all resistance, wakens the dead, removes blindness, and manifests Christ in such a compellingly beautiful way that through the gospel that he becomes irresistibly attractive to the regenerate heart. All right, here's, here's Dr. Ferguson. I hope that may help some, and many of you, I think, have thought through these things, and if you haven't, don't be like, oh man, what in the world are you talking about? I would say, just keep hanging out 
in the Scripture, particularly John 3 and Ephesians 2 and Titus 3, and you'll see there's a spiritual deadness in the human heart that the Holy Spirit alone can overcome, and all these grand new covenant promises that the Holy Spirit's fulfilled through the person and work of Christ applied to our life happen by taking out a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. This is the evidence of the Spirit at work in an individual's life. Um, I want to say so much more. I have two minutes, so I'm not going to take questions, but I'm going to say something about this phrase that we've been asked about often. It's old terminology. You know, PC taught changes every week. How, how can you refer to people with disabilities? Certainly not trying to be insensitive. We didn't write the thing, but it says severely retarded. That word has become, you know, un accepted in, in some circles. Certainly not trying to be insensitive in that, great, that way. I could just say persons with minds physically incapable of comprehending and infants may be saved. Where would you get such a thing? I commend to you Spurgeon's sermon on 2 Kings 4.26. Google it. You can find his sermon there. And listen to what he says. This is two of his lines and I'll close. Now let every mother and father here, here present, know assuredly that it is well with the child if God hath taken, taken it away from you in its infant days. And he builds that on 2 Kings 4.26. You can go read more of, of how he gets there. And then he writes, as for modern Calvinists, that's me, I know of no exception, but we all hope and believe that all persons dying in infancy are elect. So if anybody argues for the damnation of those who die in infancy, they're arguing against a historic understanding of a reformed soteriology. You can just find all the way back, I would argue to Jesus, who said, out of the mouths of babes, God has prepared, how election, predestination sounding is that, praise for himself. And so there's just loads of other, uh, not, I'm going to say, the, you have to put together passages of Scripture, Old and New Testament, uh, to see what I think is a clear theme. All right, so there's a little bit of historical theology. You know, are you a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian? Are you Arminian or Reformed in your understanding of Ordo Salutis? Our elder affirmation of faith is covenantal in our reading of the Bible, and it is Reformed in our understanding of soteriology. That's what you've just heard for the last few minutes. That's, a, that's the platform from which this church teaches, and uh, we try to just wrestle with whatever passage is right in front of us uh, as we do it. Okay? Lord, thank you for these precious people. I don't know what in the world uh, their, their mind and hearts think after all of that, but I do pray that one effect would be uh, a diligent, studious, spirit-dependent reading of Scripture, and as we run into passages that... Uh, are, are tough for us, that we would all the more depend uh, on the Holy Spirit and test our understanding uh, of your word by the, the lens of what our brothers and sisters ha have argued and wrestled with and thought about for centuries as, as we seek to, to mind the depths of your word and to know your heart and your mind as you reveal yourself to us in your word and in Christ. Thank you for this precious church. Give us, uh, uh, in this little break, an opportunity to catch our spiritual breath 
to be ready for the service that's soon to ensue. In Jesus' name, amen.